welcome to our live recording of the Quick Unpick podcast in conversation with Ethical Clothing Australia and the Textile Clothing and Footwear Union. Uh, for those who don't know me, I'm Brittany Dreghorn. I'm the founder and editor of Brit's List, an online fashion publication dedicated to telling the stories behind Australian fashion brands that lead their industry in environmental sustainability and ethical treatment of people and animals. I have had the really fun job of working on this podcast over the past couple of months, actually, which will be launching this week in line with the inaugural Ethical Clothing Australia Week. Um, it's also to celebrate ECA's uh, 20th anniversary of their accreditation program. Um, so it's a huge feat, really exciting and a great milestone to be celebrating today and with this podcast. Uh, and we'll be chatting to Angela Bell from ECA today, of course. The podcast features interviews with designers and brand leaders that are doing the incredible work of manufacturing garments in Australia ethically, accredited by ECA. If you're wondering who you're going to see on there, there'll be a lot of me talking, but I'm chatting with some incredible brands, some you'll know really well, uh, some you won't know, you might have heard of or won't know as well. Um, so the interviews are with brands such as Q Clothing Co, Nobody Denim, Jackfruit The Label, Citizen Wolf, The Social Studio, Lois Hazel, ABCH and Clothing The Gap. So we've got a broad spectrum in terms of size and the types of manufacturing that they're doing, um, but all brands that are absolutely loved by their audiences and definitely by me. Um, a lot of this series is about brands and how they've grown their label and why the ECA accreditation is important to them. Today's episode is different. It's about Australia's garment workers. So... It is going to be different, but it's actually really important and it's actually the whole reason that the podcast exists. Uh, and it's also the only reason that manufacturing in Australia exists. So in that sense, it all makes sense. A question I get a lot on my site, via email and social and even my walking tours that I run in Brisbane is, does Australian made equal ethically made? That is exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Um, there's no straight down the line answer. So I guess that's what we'll be diving into a lot today. If you do have questions throughout the podcast, um, you will see a Q&A box. Feel free to pop them in there and we will get to them at the end. So without further ado, uh, joining me today is Angela Bell, the National Manager of Ethical Clothing Australia. Welcome, Ange. Thank you for having me. And we've got uh, the TCF Union National Secretary, Jenny Crucial, from the Manufacturing Division of the CFMEU. That is a great title, Jenny. Welcome. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Very long. Great. Um, and for those who are joining us at home and might not be so familiar with the accreditation program, other than seeing it on the tags at Q, can you give us a rundown on how ECA works with brands and manufacturers? 
Yeah, thanks, Britt. And look, you know, it, it might be surprising that some some people who are going to listen to this podcast don't know what Ethical Clothing Australia is. We are a small not-for-profit. We don't have a big marketing budget. So we really do run on the businesses that are accredited with us actually using that trademark and that certification, like you said, when you've gone into queue and you've seen it on swing tags. We really rely on that um, businesses promoting the trademark to get that name out there. And apart from that, just our online social media accounts and um, which we try very hard at, you know, at growing. But basically what we are originally, we were known as the No Sweatshop label. We're, we're celebrating 20 years this year since we took our first ever application for um, accreditation. And back then we were known as the No Sweatshop label. We were the result of the union, um, the TCFUA at the time, um, now part of the CFMEU, coming together with employer groups and businesses in the industry to create this program for Australia, which is incredibly unique and it's also incredibly rigorous. But um, what, when you ask about what is, um, how does it work for brands and manufacturers, well, to take part, a brand has got to basically stick their hand up for accreditation. It's completely voluntary. Um, so it's just something they take on because they want to. And then when they do that, basically we get a list of information from them around their supply chain. Because what happens is um, at ECA, the team that I oversee, we do the administrations and promotions aspect, but we um, have an agreement with the union who undertake the auditing compliance work. So they've got a group of specialists of compliance officers and outreach officers um, to go in and to check these businesses. And when they do, as I said, they check the entire supply chain, particularly um, if there's outworkers involved in making of any of these garments for any of these businesses, and they'll do an audit of that entire supply chain. They will check around pay of those workers, they'll check around the entitlements, and they'll check around the safe working conditions. And when that happens, it doesn't matter if that business is an in-house operation or it's outsourced or it's a combination, and it goes from right from design to cut, make, trim, dispatch in terms of the workers involved in making um, those garments. So it's quite rigorous. And it does involve value adders as well. So even if they've got a garment and they outsource some embroidery work or screen printing, they're captured as well. And the union will also check that the workers working in for those businesses involved in the process um, uh, are being paid properly, are getting their entitlements and working in safe conditions. So for one business to be accredited, um, the entire supply chain must be compliant. And the way it's worked, it has been a very collaborative system so that if the union identifies issues in, term, in that compliance process, then a business has got to fix them. And they give them the opportunity, they give them the tools, they give them the templates, they will aid as much as possible to get those businesses compliance and those su suppliers as well compliant so that one business is able to use that certification trademark and promote its accreditation. So something that I found interesting, well, first, um, in terms of the ECA accreditation, it's actually aligned, this is something I learnt too recently, even though it is associated with brands, it's actually um, really accrediting a product. Um, so when it is, it isn't that right end in terms of the actual product that's being manufacturing rather than the entire brand's operations. Yeah, look, the, the complexity of that is that we have businesses, manu we credit the manufacturer for their local manufacturing. So what happens is some of the brands that we have also do offshore. 
um, which I think someone who's, you know, savvy as you and is <laughs> really interested in learning where are things made and, and looking at the, that information, you will note that some of the businesses accredited with us do also make offshore. But for what ECA's accreditation covers, it is purely what they make in Australia. Yet those garments, those products, those textile, clothing, footwear um, products that are made here onshore are captured by the process. So ECA can't um, account for anything that's made offshore by those businesses. And we've got a quite a sort of strict license agreement that can be used in terms of really giving that detail. So, because we know that's important to customers. So whether they're 100% Australian made manufacturers, some of our business, well, a high number of them are, but if they um, also offshore, it's important to note um, the level of manufacturing that they do here when they're um, talking about their accreditation and to put it on those products, of course. Like they could only use the ECA swing tag on the products that have been made here. Yeah, absolutely. The term Australian made is synonymous with being ethically made. Is that always the case? And if not, what are the main issues we see in Australian manufacturing? So no, Brit, that's not always the case. And that's why ethical clothing in Australia is so important. So it's really common in Australia to have a lot of underpayments, um, people not receiving the correct rate of pay, people not being paid superannuation, um, workers not getting a shift allowance, um, there's a whole range of award breaches that um, the union will find, not getting annual leave loading, not getting paid public holidays, not getting paid overtime. Um, it's common that out workers often are not receiving their correct pay. And so just because something's made in Australia, it doesn't mean it's ethical. Yeah, right. And that, that has prompted me um, that I was going to bring up with Ange just then, but it is really for both of you and everyone who's listening is that the ECA accreditation is actually just making sure that brands are meeting their legal requirements, um, which I actually found really interesting because it sounds like when um, you're getting an ECA accreditation, you're really going above and beyond. And I mean, I'm sure that for the brands and the manufacturers, they are working really hard to make sure that they are accredited. But um, it seems more like it's a peace of mind for brands who do want to be manufacturing ethically because it means that they're meeting their legal requirements. So I think that's really interesting. And when we look at safety in the Australian fashion manufacturing landscape, what sort of things are taken into account in terms of a safe working uh, environment and those legal requirements? Yeah. So, Britt, as you say, it is, you know, our program is mapped to Australian workplace laws and compliance with it. But, of course, the, the rigour around that also is an independent audit ensuring that. Uh, and so someone can't sort of just say they are. But also it is those obligations which are really important through the entire supply chain and to outworkers. So when we go in and we look at the safety aspects, which really like an occupational health and safety check that we do. So um, our accreditation program does involve physical audits. So it will involve an inspection of the workplace, um, the worksite, factory, or if it is an outworker, um, we've got specialised outworkers, um, particularly who speak Vietnamese and um, Chinese that can go into the homes of home workers and do those um, physical audits inspections there. And when the union's compliance officers go in, the auditors go in, they look at a range of things. They're looking at like electrical safety, chairs, um, the equipment that's being used, are walkways clear? You know, is there a tea room, somewhere to actually have your morning tea? Is it clean, tidy? Um, they're looking at lighting, exit signs, like a whole range of things. Um, and if any concerns are identified, they do need to be addressed. Um, that's all part of the process as well. And so I guess, you know, 
our auditors do tell us they come across some very concerning things on site and even just the most basic hygiene in some places because they are, um, uh, you know, a lot of these operations can be in sort of your industrial type land um, environments. Um, but, you know, they'll come, they have come across even in recent history places with the no, no soap or toilet paper in cubicles, which you and I would consider a basic thing for, you know, working in the office um, or any workplace. Um, and those things have had to be fixed as a result. So it does range and obviously to more um, uh, your other types of safety. All areas of safety are important, I think, equally. Um, but, you know, and I think one of the reasons we are fortunate, we've had no major industrial, you know, disasters or issues in this space of late. And, and you would think in some part ECA's compliance checks, the practices, um, the routine checks that are undertaken, and because it is a yearly audit as well, has got to add, you know, overall, I guess, to some of the standard that's there in the industry. So by those businesses taking part and by making their suppliers take part as well, the overall um, adding to better safety in the local industry. Definitely. It's like we're all levelling up together by the sounds of it, which is really good. Um, you touched on it there, and I think Jenny did as well. Jenny, a big part of ECA and why the organisation is necessary is because of outworkers uh, or home workers, which are referred to as a hidden workforce. Jenny, how prevalent are work um, outworkers in Australia today? Look, there are still are lots of outworkers in Australia today working at home, and especially with COVID now, we're finding even more people um, working at home. And they are hidden because often they're at the end of long, complex supply chains and not always declared to the um, company or brand at the top of the supply chain. So um, a lot of outworkers don't know that they um, have rights and conditions and um, they often don't even know who is the person who's giving them the work or where it's really coming from. So it is hidden right. and, um, you know, it's such a you know, right around, right around Australia, you'll find people working at home and not fully understanding their rights. Interesting. We've actually got a short video here, which is going to, um, it is Garment Worker talking about why they choose to work from home. So we'll watch that and then we'll, um, we'll come back and chat about that a bit further. Mm. I don't want to be control restricted in my times and I like to be, to have the freedoms. And yeah, I we do have elderly in the family, so they need attention. So that's probably a better uh, a better working options. If you do go into work in a company, that means you are restricted to that particular company, and you don't have an option of taking extra. So you kind of like put all your eggs in one basket. So if anything happened to that, you kind of gone. <laughs> in terms of financials so it's really insecure and this one is like i'm not saying it's 100 secure but at least it gives you an option to one I, day avoid and then trying to not taking up cutting because that also increases your, your your space as well you need a big space for the cutting table so i'm trying to avoid so they did the cutting and i'll just do the whole thing complete pieces and it when you go back to the company, it may stretch the customer. Mm -hmm. Make the work so much easier because you know what goes next. When you go do sections, it's really, really hard when they you can't tell the other person what to do before they come to you. And you've got to be careful when you come to the next one, go to the next one as well. So I like that control. And I have all the, all the machines. What I have is equivalent to a, a factory setting, all the machine that you would want and you would need to complete a garment. 
Yeah, so this is really interesting because in nearly every other industry that I'm aware of, um, the most secure type of employment is is like a full-time job where you work for one employer. Freelancing or working from home generally um, is less secure. So I feel like that's really interesting. Um, Jenny, what, why is this being reflected by these workers? Why does this seem like a more secure form of employment or, or chosen employment? Um, look, this is many, many years of work by the union, you know, fighting for laws to protect people working at home and ensuring that they're treated as an employee and they have the same rights and conditions that other workers have. So it just didn't happen. It was, it's many years of work trying to improve our award, trying to improve the Fair Work Act and really working with workers to ensure they understand their rights and conditions and ensuring that we send the um, outwork offices out into the communities to work in communities so workers know that they can come to the union if they want to um, know what their conditions are and, and have their problems solved. And even though, I mean, it sounds like it's not an ideal situation in the sense that they're not being employed full time in some cases, it does sound like uh, the union and ECA and manufacturers are finding a really positive way to um, bring this whole workforce into the industry. Um, and it, it's definitely something that's done a lot now. Like, do you, how do you see it? Is it growing or is it, um, is it becoming less in size? Um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there was a lot more outworkers, but I think um, today we're seeing a few more people work at home because of COVID. Um, but, you know, they work as full-time workers for the label or the brand that they're employed by, and they have some security around their work and they have conditions. So um, some some outworkers choose to work at home because they are caring for family or um, they, they have other lifestyle choices and they make that choice, but some work from home because they don't have a choice to work in a factory. So it's, it, it's really different depending on the worker. Do we know how prevalent they are? I know, um, I think we we're talking the other day about around 40,000 garment workers in Australia. How many, uh, what percentage of them would be out workers? Uh, Britt, you know, the problem is we don't know. We, we know there's lots of outworkers and we know probably I'd say 40 or 50% are outworkers. Wow. But we also think that there's a lot of hidden workers working at home even today and that's because a lot of employers don't declare that they're, they're sending work out. So it's sort of something that we find new outworkers all the time and um, not everybody does the right thing and declares their supply chain or who's in it. Yeah, wow. Um, and one thing I notice when I'm reviewing brands that manufacture here and offshore is the use of the terms fair wage and above minimum wage. The problem I see with this is that it's highly subjective, as in fair to who. Um, how does ECA ensure that workers in Australia are paid fairly? Yeah, thanks, Britt. And it is, I think there is a lot of, um, well, not confusion, but because there's been a lot of advocacy, particularly for global garment workers in this space, um, we are seeing some new terminology being used because basically there's been an acknowledgement that um, overseas 
what might be the minimum wage or maybe one doesn't even exist, for, for a business to be paying a minimum wage is actually not in any way covering the costs of living for a garment worker overseas. So it's not covering, you know, they could work full time and still not be able to pay their accommodation, still not be able to access healthcare, um, school for their children like edu or education. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's um, I guess there's a lot of groups that are advocating in that space, particularly what Australian companies are doing offshore and calling for what they call that a living wage. Um, and in Australia for ECA, as we mentioned earlier, we're mapped to Australian workplace laws and in this regard um, to the award rates. But and, and we check not just those pay the pay, but also you know the superannuation, the leave loading, other um, important entitlements. And so whilst um, I think probably the union, someone like Jenny's probably got a view on whether the Australian, you know, minimum hourly rate that we have a national hourly rate um, award minimum in this country, whether that's enough or not. It's really important to know um, for your listeners that basically a garment worker in Australia under the Textile, Clothing, Footwear and Associated Industries Award is only paid just above the minimum award, um, award rates. So I think last time we checked before the, the latest um, changes were made, it was just uh, I think the minimum, the, the lowest was about 50%, 50 cents above the minimum um, hourly rate that we have in Australia, which sits around just above $19 an hour. So when you think about it, um, you know, we, we know these um, fair wages, living wages, minimum wages are critically important to global um, garment workers, but they're also critically important to Australian workers. And because if you are making just above that minimum um, award hourly rate, Every dollar you earn, every cent you earn is incredibly important. And to be being, you know, um, not getting that because <laughs> you're somewhere down in a supply chain or you're hidden is obviously something that ECA seeks to, um, you know, expose and rectify. And, and an example, not directly on wages, but on superannuation last year, the compliance officers, the auditors returned, it was $345,000 in unpaid superannuation. Um, last year in ECA accredited businesses. So you've got a host of workers there. That was across 18 businesses where those issues were found. And that's over $345,000 in super going back to people who probably, you know, obviously, like I've said, <laughs> need that need that money for when they retire. So, you know, whether it's here or overseas, these are really important issues and, um, you know, to be paying what you're legally required is the absolute, obviously, minimum. Absolutely. Good expect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we actually have another short video to show. So I think now would be a good time to have a look at that. It is by another Queensland outworker. Um, so, and it's interesting to hear how, um, why he chooses to work from home and also, yeah, how he ended up in that situation. Um, yeah. So we'll, we'll listen to that and then we'll chat about that a bit further. So he has started working uh, from home since he arrived to Australia was nine, uh, 1993. He, he starts to pick up the work and 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 from there. À, là cái này cái để nói. Tại vì mình là cái người mà từ bên Việt Nam qua đây là có gia đình cái tuổi lớn 
rồi cái, cái bên đây là cái thuộc về cái tiếng anh thì tất nhiên là mình bây giờ nếu mà mình đi mà mà trên in cái tiếng anh thì mất thời gian rất là lâu nhưng mà mình phải cần tiền tại vì có gia đình á lo cho con cái nó đi học trường này kia nọ thì tất nhiên là sẵn mình có cái nghề thì tất nhiên mình mới trên in lại cái nghề để mình làm cho nó quyết đi được coi như đúng cái nghề của mình Okay, so because he came here with his family, little small family, so he got uh, his two children and uh, his wife. So he, for him, he thought, uh, if you arrive to somewhere, so it's not your country, you have to, uh, you have to be um, good at the uh, at English. So he said, oh, if he has to train his English, so to be able to do something else uh, would take long time, and he has to. Um, to raise his, you know, uh, or settle his family well. So that's why he thought sewing is the best option for him. So he could start straight away. He doesn't need, he got all the skills he could do. So that's why he thought um, uh, start straight away to do sewing. And this is uh, one of his, uh, his, his best options. Lúc đầu thì cũng không có biết duy nhận là cái gì. Trường hợp là có một cái công ty đó, có như nó làm mà không trả tiền này kia nọ. Thì yeah. tất nhiên là mới biết mới liên lạc với cái cô Thảo, cô Thảo mới cho cái số điện thoại qua cái công nghiệp để mà để giúp đỡ, dương nhận để giúp đỡ vấn đề mà cái tiền để mà lấy lại. Thì cũng không có ngờ là tại vì cô Nguyệt, cô cổ cũng biết là mình cũng có đứa con là đã, đã, đã cũng, cũng có nói nó nhiều lần, nó là không thể nào lấy lại được. Nhưng mà để nói là để ba là bên dương nhận là sẽ lấy lại được cho ba này kia nọ thì tất nhiên là mới để gì dương nhìn thì cô nguyệt cũng như dương nhìn để giúp đỡ trong cái, cái phần đó thì lấy lại được là, là tất cả là 15 000 và lấy không là thiếu đồng nào mà cũng không có tốn tiền gì hết. So um, he uh, obviously you can you can tell that uh, he is enjoying to do the sewing so much. So while he was working uh, with one of the company making uniforms and then he was working for for under the 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 uh, one of the supply chain so with one of the contractor so he he by accident or something he met with Tao uh, when she was in Queensland and then he he met uh, like in in a meeting so him and then one of his um contractor that that did work to him so he came to do to have to have uh, a meeting so they explained about the union and stuff and then he he knew something about union he said oh this is something good and so then a little bit after that he he uh, worked with this this um contractor that he went to the meeting he he didn't he didn't pay uh he owed him about like fifteen thousand dollars and then and then he said, we got his contact and everything all the details what he, he was um, um has been um owed the money so uh we tried to quickly really quickly like fifteen thousand dollars even though we have already told to his daughter he's she's in the law firm or something she said no that uh, it's no way you can uh, retrieve the the amount the, the money because uh, no one is going to pay you and then there's no documentation and stuff and then he said yeah i think the union can help so this story that we have just heard um is about an outworker in australia um who has come set up his home business because it's it, all he knew how to do Um, it was easy for him to be able to do that and obviously um, make money straight away for his family and something when he wasn't confident in his English. 
Um, and this is actually an example and a story of someone who has been exploited. So if, if I'm correct, that story is about um, he was underpaid and the new union came in and identified that and helped him to um, be paid what he was owed. Jenny, you know, having seen this, can you talk a bit about the people who are most likely to be subjected to unfair work environments and being underpaid in the industry? Well, unfortunately, um, it will be out workers. It will be um, people working in sweatshops and sometimes even factories. We have lots of um, international students who aren't paid correctly. We have people on visas. We have a lot of migrant workers who don't understand what their rights and conditions are. But unfortunately, in Australia, there is a lot of underpayment and it goes right across the board and even outside of our industry. But it's most like, you know, it is most likely the most vulnerable workers that get exploited the most. Yeah, absolutely. And and it, it's these issues that sparked the initiation of the ECA program 20 years ago. How has the organisation's mission adapted and changed over the past 20 years? Thanks, Britt. And I was going to say, you know, in terms of that example we just heard, it was only through him finding out about the union and ECA that and the fact that the business that owed him money was in a supply chain that he was able to get that $15,000 he was owed, hadn't been able to get paid back, that he was actually able to get that money returned. And I understand too the union helped with that process, was always checking, you know, there was a payment plan put in place, was always checking that he was getting that money um, as it was owed to him and that, that if there was any payments didn't come through, that it was being followed up. And that I just think it's, in, you know, incredibly valuable work and incredibly important. And it goes back to, yeah, when we started 20 years ago, high levels of exploitation in the local industry, it was sort of, the, you know, we'd seen a lot of companies going offshore, a lot of um, fragmentation in supply chains and what Jenny said earlier in terms of the use of home workers and our workers. And really the issues of why we started and that core purpose has remained exactly the same. And I think, you know, we've demonstrated that those, or it gets demonstrated every day, I think when the auditing is undertaken, that the um, there's still those continual breaches, there's still those areas of exploitation. And, um, you know, if you want to look in even globally, we know it's a massive issue for garment workers, but even locally you look in Australia and any um, or industries with complex supply chains, you see workers being exploited and that's even been you know we've seen it recently um, in the food industry in Australia particularly where migrant workers and outsourced practices have existed and so at least you know for the fashion industry and the manufacturing TCF manufacturing Australia we have this accreditation program um, that means that businesses that want to stick their hand up be independently audited and show they're doing the right thing can do that and demonstrate that practice um, and so well um you know, just talking about that, you know, how how we've changed um, and we were originally, you know, a small organisation and we, and we still are, but it's definitely, um, you know, looking back, I had a quick look at the history to see, you know, the focus at the start and it was a different landscape when we started in terms of the businesses that we were working with um, and there was, you know, a, a range of code practices that existed, whereas now we focus mainly on one, which is the manufacturer's code. Um, but in that first year of um, accreditations that we had, we had four businesses come on when it started 20 years ago. In the second year, there was one business. In the third year, there were two. So it was a very slow burn at the start, um, whereas last year um, alone we had 31 new accreditations, which is great. And so just showing that despite being 20 years in existence, that need's still there and I think um, we're seeing a bit of a, a, um, 
a renewed interest in this area and a renewed interest in showing these ethical credentials, um, which, which is great. And I must acknowledge that um, the first two businesses actually with applying or accreditations are still with us as well. So wow. um, manufacturers ADA, the Australian Defence Apparel and Quali Tops, which is here in Melbourne, um, you know, a small family business that makes great quality custom-made um, clothing. They were amongst the first um, to apply and get accredited and 20 years on, they're still here. And there's, you know, there's a, a number of businesses like that that have um, stayed onshore instead of going offshore and, and, and stayed um, committed to the program. That's so good. I mean, you're talking about the last 20 years, which, you know, there's been ups and downs, but nothing's been like this year, which is a totally different thing. Jenny, how's the industry been impacted by COVID-19? Look, it's been dramatically impacted and, you know, there's been lots of challenges and lots of opportunities. So, you know, with retail shutting down, a lot of... Um, you know, companies have lost, you know, the capacity to sell their garments. There's also been major issues with um, overseas supply chains, bringing in fabric with freight, with the cost of freight, um, getting things delivered into Australia. But there's also been opportunities where they've been able to retool and swap from making a fashion garment to PPE, whether it's a mask or a surgical gown. So there's been lots of opportunities around that. And I think now there's some real opportunities to promote Australian made and ethically made and there's a real appetite from the consumer to do that so I'm just hoping that um, you know that the state and federal governments take an opportunity to really grab that and the industry takes an opportunity to grab that because I think people do want to buy Australian made and they do want to make sure it's ethical so um, there's still some challenges that are going to face you know the industry for some time you know members have been stood down without um, some without pay, some with JobKeeper. Um, JobKeeper, the amount is um, reducing. So there's still a, a way bit to go, but I think we have to look at the opportunities and move forward towards those. Speaking of opportunities, and I know you went out to um, brands recently with a survey to find out how they've uh, been impacted or what opportunities they've seen. What, what did you find in that survey? Yeah, you know, and I don't want to um, downplay those impacts because they have obviously been real and very detrimental and we're still in that roller coaster um, of COVID at the moment. But when we did this survey, we did get some really heartening results, um, which are obviously the things, you you know, you, um, you want to focus on. And um, we had, of all the businesses that we surveyed that, came, that answered um, the survey, you know, 100% of them said they were committed to local manufacturing and retaining jobs despite COVID. So it was great to see that there was this, um, you know, commitment to stay um, to stay local. The issue is that obviously these same businesses are feeling the uncertainty around whether they, they will survive um, the, the pandemic and obviously because there's obviously so much unknown around that. But to have them all say 100% they're committed, that's great. We also had... Um, uh, uh, you know, I guess another rare upside was more than almost 60%, sorry, of survey respondents report an increase in new customers. So we know that when um, COVID hit and those global supply chains were disrupted, um, we had governments, but also the private sector, particularly health, but also companies, private companies that wanted to um, produce, uh, not produce, but to get um, PPE for their um, staff, 
going to local manufacturers, recognising that, you know, there was certain safety in that and obviously when um, can produce this sort of a higher quality um, product for their customers. And we also seen um, the results show that 49%, so almost 50%, have seen an increase in online sales. And I know that some of the local um, brands that I've spoken to actually increased their local production um, over that time, particularly the brands doing leisure wear and that sort of thing. So, and then we had others who were these big, um, you know, brands pivoting, as they say, to making face masks and gowns and scrubs and, you know, remodeling their manufacturing businesses to aid in in the response to the pandemic. But what we really need now is um, support for those businesses, be they brands or manufacturers, and we'd really like to see that support come from government in particular, which have great purchasing power, particularly in the area of procurement, um, to come. But also, you know, we're urging everyone to to buy ethical and to buy local. So, yeah, so I don't want to say that it hasn't been tough and it still is tough, but we've definitely seen some really positive um, signs. And we also asked about people, you know, about the ethical aspect. And we had more than 70% of businesses say that more customers are asking questions about labour rights of the people who made their clothes, which is another positive thing. Yeah, that is so positive. I mean, yeah, I definitely don't want to downplay. I just hate that it had to be this to make this happen, you know. Like, why did we have to go through this for um, people to want to support Australian businesses? Anyway, I'll take it. Um, And if we can just keep doing it, that would be awesome. I've got some questions. um, And if anyone has questions, I know some are in chat. Um, I'll, I'll check both of them. So that's fine. Um, The first one is for you, Jenny. Uh, It's from Lexi. Could it be possible to make these audits compulsory for all manufacturers within Australia? A fantastic question. And why isn't it compulsory? Um, Well, I suppose it's not compulsory because the laws in Australia don't really allow it. So we we would need better industrial laws to allow it. But the auditing around the world, it only really works where it's done by a union because the union has access to the members not only during the audit but ongoing after that and they have the relationship with the workers. So for it to work, it really needs to be done through unions and it needs to be done through industrial agreements or through companies doing what the ECA companies are volunteering. But if we wanted every company to have to um, really say what their supply chain is and, and to be audited, they'd need to either agree or we'd need to have industrial relation laws that actually make them do that. Is it also because we need someone to pay for it? I mean, is that a part of it? Look, it's, you know, obviously there's the cost in going out and auditing, but also just having good laws that would allow unions to, you know, companies to be made to declare their supply chains would be a really good start mm. um, because it's where unions could organise and they could... Um, go to every workplace and audit those supply chains. Yeah. And I just want to add to that. I think, um, you know, it would be great to have a compulsory. It's just um, there's other ways that um, other tools that other people can use to encourage ECA accreditation. So um, in the Victorian government, by way of example, introduced a policy in August 2018 to encourage, not encourage, sorry, to um, uh, to tell their government agencies to buy textile, clothing and footwear products locally made where there's a genuine market. So 
by governments implementing policies like that mean businesses that want that work and want to supply uniforms um, for various government agencies with their customer service or national parks um, they have to then seek accreditation because the government made a ruling that um, or ruling or part of the policy I should say that ECA accreditation must be in place from Australian manufacturers and that's because they want to know they've got an ethical supply chain and they get that um, assurance and so by governments doing that sort of thing that therefore leads to more businesses and manufacturers seeking accreditation we've also got retailers who um, from small to big recognize ECA accreditation and of course you know there could be there could be other triggers that whether it's private sector or other governments could do in terms of enforcing ECA accreditation as part of a policy and that's another way of getting businesses on board when you can't actually make it unfortunately compulsory. Yeah absolutely I think it's so awesome that it is encouraged by the Victorian government you're certainly welcome to come up here to Queensland so I'll have a chat to uh, Anastasia after this. Um, Thank got you. Another question here from Laura uh, she says do you think the manufacturing industry has the resources to grow comfortably and will the government encourage this growth which you've just sort of touched on Jenny you'd see a lot of um, what our manufacturing industry has the capability of doing do you think there is a room for growth? Um, there's lots of room for growth but they do need more support more security from government so they need good procurement legislation because government has the capacity to make their uniforms here for the defence force, for the um, for the police, for the public servants. So they have the capacity to put work out into the sector. And if they did that and the sector um, got some confidence, then they would invest and grow. And there's a lot of really exciting things happening in the industry. But yes, they need more support from, from government to do that. And they need, you know, people to buy their products. Yeah, absolutely. And the more manufacturing capabilities that we have, the more brands that um, can uh, manufacture their products here, uh, it'll probably end up bringing the prices down because I know a lot of people struggle getting the, the um, minimum order quantities and things like that. So it's nice to have that flexibility onshore. Um, one for you, Angela, uh, by Mladen. Uh, is there a checklist including award wages for employers who use outworkers or can you supply um, a link? Is there somewhere online where people can find this about? I mean, they could go and get an ECA accreditation. <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah, no, look, we've got a whole business resources section on our website and if the person finds it um, hard to find, just shoot us an email at info at ethicalclothingaustralia.org.au. That's info at ethicalclothingaustralia.org.au. But we've got businesses resources on that page. It includes a guide to understanding your legal obligations as they are under the award. Um, we've also got questions and answers in there it's a guide to ECA accreditation but the question and answer section might also help and we've got some templates there as well around um, some of the requirements that you must do to the BOR and um, some to outworkers as well so we do have those resources which are freely available on our website but of course um, we would never supply individual uh, information to people around meeting their legal obligations. We would, yeah, encourage them to get the ECA accreditation. I would encourage that as well. And it's also super affordable. Um, so I think it's really good. If anybody hasn't looked into it, absolutely do that if you are a brand considering it. Um, a question on here from Anna Louise. We need upskilling and further education for workers to progress and earn more. Do you think the government will support this? 
Have we touched on this, Jenny? No, we haven't, but it is something that we've talked to the state and federal government about. There is a real need to put some money into training and to um, have some of the qualifications and some of the, you know, TAFE courses come back into the industry and also to support industry to train on the job. So it is a big gap at the moment and we're working really hard to try and get government to support that, but a lot more needs to be done in this area. Yeah, absolutely. And one for you and um, from Jane, and I think this will be the last one that we take, is does ECA accreditation extend to environmental aspects of production, e.g. renewable power, grey water recycling and recycled materials? Yeah, thanks. This is actually a common question because as... um you know, as we know, we're all learning more about sustainability and that's the sustainability of the whole, really, the fashion industry, particularly, I dare say, fast fashion and how unsustainable that is. Um, so basically, um, our accreditation program is purely focused on the garment workers in the industry and protecting and upholding their rights um, and ensuring that throughout the supply chain. So we don't actually look at um, environmental impacts in production and nor do we look at, um, you know, the issues around waste in the fashion industry in particular um, that ends up in our, um, land, you know, landfill where people aren't wearing clothes um, for as long as they used to, um, as often as they used to and are disposing of clothing um, far quicker and we know that the um, quality of that clothing and some of the synthetics that are being used are creating great problems in terms of landfill. But um, no, ECA's remit is really focused on um, workplace laws and the workers in the industry. Um, there are other bodies out there that are looking at this space, particularly in Australia, um, and have those, I guess, area of expertise and skills. But the great thing is a lot of the businesses we work with are also doing things in this space. And it's really nice because, you know, these businesses are leaders in the industry in terms of taking, you know, that step in terms of the participation in the program. And you'll often find that doing leadership in other spaces as well and so we've got you know the software manufacturer that's got solar panels and every second sock is um, made on solar energy you know there's circular um, uh, fashion labels accredited with ECA there's a lot of businesses looking at um, where their um, initial fabrics and um, uh, you know uh, all the all the all the foundations of those garments of where they're, they're coming from. I was going to go on about buttonholes, so I was trying to stop, <laughs> stop myself. But with the diff, sorry, different types of buttons now that you can get. So um, yeah, so there's a whole range of activity in that space. But when it comes to certification, um, we are very much focused on the workers aspect only. And that is definitely, I mean, that's across the industry. There's really no one-size-fits-all accreditation, but to have something like this in Australia is actually really special. And like you said, if they're, if they're conscious enough to be thinking about, you know, making sure that garment workers' rights are upheld, they're probably thinking about the environment as well, which is really fantastic. So those two generally do correlate. Well, that is our last question, but if people, if there's any brands um, who are listening or designers listening and they want to find out more about the ECA accreditation, definitely, definitely get in touch. Um, the email address and some links are in the chat here. Um, you would have got an email today from ECA as well, which is really great. 
The full podcast is launching later this week. You can hear from all of these brands. They're really, really inspiring chats. Um, They're doing incredible things and they are responsible for keeping manufacturing here in Australia. So I think it is really good. Um, If you don't already, please follow me on Instagram at Britslist and check out ECA's Instagram as well. There's lots of info on there about Ethical Clothing Australia Week, which is happening now, Ange, is that correct? Yes, it started on Sunday um, yesterday and it's going for the week and hopefully people are going to see a flood of information. We've got great support out there from unions to academics to other stakeholders, the fashion industry. Um, it's kind of a combination for us. It's it's a 20-year anniversary celebration in terms of, you know, people which um passing on congratulation messages as well. But also the big thing this week is the ECA week and that is where, you know, we are encouraging businesses not only to be on socials but um, to show off their factories. We've got a guide available um, of different um, events and activities that ECA businesses are participating in. We put out a newsletter today with a goodie bag. So the goodie bag's gone digital um, as it is, as everything is at the moment. So um, if you've missed it, it um, some of those offers and discounts will be shared across socials this week. And you know what is the most beautiful thing, though, and we've said this in the office today, we've got messages, um, seeing photos where businesses are celebrating this week with their employees and staff. And that's just the most, you know, the nicest thing. We've seen cakes. We've seen um, thank you cards that we've developed um, as part of the week being shared out amongst staff. You know, we're really encouraging our accredited businesses to take the time, to, um, you know, to acknowledge employees, to acknowledge participation in the program and what a commitment it is, and just to say thank you. Thank you. You know, we've got these skilled people here. Um, it's hard work. It's, you know, it's hard labour, um, but we, we're grateful for having these capabilities and the talents and the skills of those um, local garment workers, and really that's what the entire week is about. Absolutely. You're making ripples in the industry. So that's really great. And yeah, if there's just one week to celebrate during the year, yeah, let's do it. Let's all get on board. Um, I want to extend my thanks to you, Angela, um, and the team at ECA and um, also Jenny for joining me today on this episode of The Quick Unpick. We'll talk to you all soon. The Quick Unpick is brought to you by Ethical Clothing Australia in celebration of the 20th anniversary of their accreditation program and inaugural Ethical Clothing Australia Week. This podcast is produced with assistance from the content division. Music is by Brisbane-based artist Sasha McLeod, also known as Psycho. That's S-Y-C-C-O. Catch the full first season of The Quick Unpick wherever you get your podcasts starting this October. 